Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our webinar titled The UN Celebrates 75, What Does the Future Hold? Celebrating UN Day 2020, the 75th anniversary of the United Nations here in Minnesota. I am Nancy Dunleavy, current president of the Minnesota chapter of Citizens for Global Solutions. Along with the United Nations Association, Harold E. Stassen, Minnesota chapter, and Global Minnesota, we are very pleased to co-host this event. We are fortunate to have with us today, Stefan Dujaric, spokesperson for the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. Many of you joined us last year on October 23rd, when Mr. Dujaric was our guest speaker for a UN Day 75th anniversary kickoff event that we hosted at the James J. Hill House in St. Paul. One of the highlights of Mr. Dujaric's trip to Minnesota last year was a visit to Highland Park Senior High School in St. Paul, where he met with Model UN and AP Social Studies students. During the Q&A session, Mr. Dujaric shared that to be prepared for the many varied questions that he receives daily during his press briefings, he has three ring binders with tabs for each of the 193 member states that are members of the UN. This one small detail gives us an insight into the challenges of his job. Imagine the role of representing the UN Secretary General's voice at this time in our history, as our world faces growing challenges such as the COVID-19 pandemic, the climate crisis, economic and social inequalities, new forms of violence, and rapid changes in technology. At the same time that public trust in traditional institutions is in decline, and relations between countries has been under strain. Stefan, we thank you for your work and also for your presence with us today. Over 130 individuals registered for this webinar and many others expressed an interest in attending but couldn't do so during their workday. Today's session is being recorded and the recording will be posted soon on all three of our organization's websites. With this brief introduction, I will now turn the microphone over to Mark Ritchie, President of Global Minnesota. Take it away, Mark. Thank you, Nancy, and welcome, Stefan, again. When you were here a year ago, we had a chance to celebrate. We had uh, artifacts from our Historical Society of Minnesota's crucial role in the founding of the UN. We talked about a lot of parts of the future for the UN. But none of us could have imagined how this year will have brought to the forefront many of the different kinds of agencies and other parts of the UN that we now can see are crucial to our survival, crucial to our well-being. In fact, uh, just last week in Minnesota, we celebrated World Food Day, which was the 75th anniversary of the founding by the UN of the Food and Agriculture Organization. It was the first specialized organization created by the UN to deal with the famine that had really swept across Europe, Asia. Um, that whole Second World War period had caused through the civil conflict and the military conflict, famine and hunger throughout the world. And it was such an important event and such an important thing we celebrated each year. But we also celebrated that the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, who has honored the UN 
the UN Secretary General and many of the UN specialized agencies and organizations over the years chose this year to honor the World Food Program for their work in being the 911 from the planet where it was Beirut with a gigantic explosion that ruined 85% of the nation's flour, the most important food, or responding to the need for protective equipment for people dealing with the COVID around the planet or the need to get uh, people move from one place to the other for specialized care. So we've had a chance this last year to really see the UN in action in every part of the life of the planet and how important it is. So today to welcome you back is an opportunity for us to, to say thank you again to the UN for that kind of role on our planet, but also to promise you, to pledge to you, our continued energy, our continued focus, our continued devotion on making the next 75 years of the UN as dynamic, as important, as crucial, and also to have it be in the embrace of a whole planet that sees the logic, which is when we can find ways to avoid war, to promote peace, we can find ways to deal with hunger and health. But we also have to remember that we have to deal with those day-to-day -day crises of health and human rights, gender equity and racial equity as a part of creating the conditions for peace. The UN inspires us and having you back to help us close out this year is such an important and honor to us. Thank you again. I wanna hand it over to Stu Ackman, president of our Harold Stassen chapter of the United Nations Association of America. Thank you, Mark. Uh, welcome everybody. I'm very glad you could be here. Um, on behalf of the United Nations Association, I welcome you. It was a great human achievement that 75 years ago, the United Nations was created. There was a lesson as part of that. Um, when the League of Nations failed and World War I proceeded, there was a sense that something needed to change and it did. And so we have the United Nations 75 years later. Today we celebrate the work of the United Nations and its specialized agencies. Mark just highlighted the World Food Program. Global Minnesota did a fabulous um, day-long program last week. Of course, there's the World Health Organization, which is working hand-in-hand -hand with the World Food Program, which is charged with mitigating the impacts and eventually eliminating COVID and keeping track of other infectious diseases, including polio, malaria and Ebola. And one of the things that we must not lose track of is UN peacekeeping. Approximately 100,000 individuals, 86,000 of which are military soldiers, 13,000 civilians and 1,300 volunteers are currently deployed in 13 operations. Some of which are the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Kosovo, Cyprus, South Sudan, and there's an observer group in India and Pakistan. At this time, we'll play the UN Day message from Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Today, we face a global pandemic, and worldwide, people rightly raise their voices against racism. Confronting problems is a start, 
but we also have to solve them. We have a timeless guide to tackle our share challenges and fix the world's fragilities. The guide is the United Nations Charter. The Charter was signed 75 years ago, and its principles ring just as true today. <clears throat> Facing fundamental human rights, the equal rights of men and women, the dignity and worth of every person, international law and the peaceful settlement of disputes, better standards of life in larger freedom. These enduring values will carry us to a new future, a future where we stop harming the natural environment and start tackling climate change, where we reject bigotry and celebrate the richness of human diversity, where young people lead in the streets, in their schools, in society. United Nations was founded before threats like cybercrime and online hate speech emerged. But our charter shows how to rise to these challenges too. Let us realize this vision of peace, human rights and justice for everyone by joining together with humanity, with unity, with each other. As we all know, the UN covers an enormous amount of ground. The individual responsible for articulating this on behalf of Secretary Antonio Guterres, Secretary General Antonio Guterres is Stefan, Stefani Dujaric. Last year, we learned that he heads a team of 10 individuals and that he starts every day at 5.45 in the morning reading and preparing to present and frame the most important issues of the day. And eventually at a press conference to answer a wide, wide variety of questions from the, from the press corps, all with the necessity of clarity and precision so as to not be misunderstood and cause a problem. Stefan was appointed spokesperson for the Secretary General in 2014. By, the, or by then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. He served in the same position for Secretary General Kofi Annan from 2005 to 2006. And of course, we consider Kofi practically a native son of Minnesota. Prior to joining the United Nations in 2000, Mr. Dejarik worked for ABC News Television for almost 10 years in various capacities in the networks New York City, London, and Paris news bureaus. He traveled extensively on assignment to cover major stories throughout Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. Born in France, Mr. Dujaric has lived in the United States for most of the last 40 years. He is a graduate of Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. He is married, lives in New York City, has three children, one in university, one in high school, and a third in middle school. So Steph is a Mets fan, um, which puts him roughly on the same ground as Minnesota sports, sort of disappointed unless one's got one's expectations in line. And with that, we welcome Stefan Dujaric. Uh, there we go. Um, so I just want to say a big, big thank you to, to Nancy, to Stu, to, to Mark for uh, welcome me back uh, virtually uh, to Minnesota. As I, as I mentioned, you you guys you guys got me on the cheap today. I'm sitting in my office uh, in between uh, in between two meetings. So if I seem a bit more distracted than I did last year, uh, 
um, I, I, do, I do apologize. Um, and I really wish I could be, uh, be with you in, in person. As, uh, as Nancy mentioned, we had a great, great visit uh, last year uh, to the Twin Cities. I was very impressed and moved by, by the students uh, that I met, by, by all the, uh, the UNA uh, members, the Global Minnesota members, the, the members of the Citizens for Global Solutions. Uh, that evening, and just uh, really uh, very touched by the um, uh, by the welcome and the uh, the hospitality uh, shown by, um, by by all of you. Um, so it's again, it's really an honor to be able to to talk to this joint group of UNA UNA USA Global Minnesota Citizens for Global Solu uh, Global Solutions. I think you know three fantastic uh, organizations that work in the spirit of Minnesotan leaders who came before you, before us, uh, and fought hard to create the United Nations, to sustain the United Nations, um, and the principles for which this organization uh, stands for. So, you know, the the challenge that I face by speaking to the same group. Um, two years in a row is that I can't rehash the same remarks, I can't use the same speech, I can't use the same jokes, so I had to work on some new material, which made me work a little bit, uh, a little bit harder. Though, you know, we don't have to be, none of us have to be experts in international relations to, to realize that October 2020 looks a whole lot different than October 2019, and I think very few of us uh, could have predicted that we will find ourselves in, in, in the world and the situation uh, that, that we live in. So, you know, given that this is virtual, I want to give more time to, um, uh, to taking questions uh, from all of you who have, uh, who have tuned in. Uh, but before, uh, before we go to questions, I just want to say a few words about uh, the UN in the time of COVID, the challenges uh, that we see from UN headquarters on how how we keep the UN running. Um, so I basically want to touch on three, uh, three broad areas, multilateral system, the role of the Secretary General at uh, this time, and finally, the, the staff of, of the UN and how, how the organization is, is working. So, you know, as, as the old saying goes, may you live in interesting times. I think we've, that has been delivered on us many times over. Um, you know, it's plain to see, uh, if you look at the multilateral system, uh, that if there was ever time that we needed a strong functioning multilateral institutions to face challenges that really uh, don't care and don't respect international borders, uh, it, would be, uh, it, it would be now. Um, Sadly, I think one of the underlying problems that we are that we are facing uh, with with COVID uh, COVID nineteen is that too early on early on in this crisis, too many countries went their own ways uh, in dealing with the crisis instead of trying to face it in a truly coordinated uh, coordinated way which I, I think this coordination could have saved a lot of suffering uh, straight on. Um, and we are seeing, I mean, if you look just at the lack of coordination on border policies in, in any parts of the world, the European Union and other parts of the world, you could see that there is a real lack of 
global coordination. But we will need this coordination moving forward on figuring out how we come out of this crisis and the kind of post-COVID uh, world and what, what it will uh, look like. So very soon after the crisis erupted, uh, my boss, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, made a call for a global ceasefire. As he put it, as long as humans keep uh, fighting other humans, whether it's in Yemen, in Libya, in Colombia, in Syria, or any other place, uh, the only winner is the virus. And no place right now illustrates that challenge more than what is going on in the Armenia-Azerbaijan area. In the last two weeks, we've seen COVID cases go up 80% in Azerbaijan and have gone up almost by half in Armenia. Um, so, you know, they, it's, it's really the case in point of why we need this global ceasefire more uh, today more than, more than ever. Um, the, you know, the, the ceasefire, I think the ceasefire call struck a chord uh, with the global community. It was quickly endorsed by 114 governments, many different regional organizations, religious leaders, the Pope endorsed it, civil society groups, a number of armed groups uh, endorsed it. Um, and, you know, the Secretary General is a very practical man. He fully understands that, you know, that mistrust remains high and it's difficult to move from this kind of global call towards implementation, but his envoys on the ground are working hard at it. And we're seeing some progress. You know, there are some, uh, some bright spots. There are talks going on right now in Geneva and Libya, on Libya. Um, in, in Syria, the ceasefire is mostly held and nothing has gone backwards. In Yemen, there's some fighting, but there's also, we've seen a release exchange of prisoners. In Afghanistan, while there is violence, uh, remains violence in Afghanistan, at least the, 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 the government and the Taliban are, are talking. So we're seeing some, some, uh, some positive, uh, some positive uh, trends. So, you know, we, as I said, we, we received a lot of support from the globe for this global ceasefire, but one voice I think was missing for a long time. And that's the voice of the Security Council, the unified, unified voice of the Security Council, the, the UN organ tasked with the maintenance of peace and security in the world. And it took months for members of the Security Council to agree on a text. And they did, and you know, one that could have been stronger, but it was, it was clear. Now, the, the reason I think it took so long was not that because member states were by a definition against the ceasefire, nobody can be against a, a ceasefire, but it's really because of the dysfunctional um, level of bilateral relations between the main powers, the tensions we're seeing between the main powers, and how that, how the bilateral bleeds into the multilateral. So, you know, the, the UN, the Security Council General Assembly doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, and so what happens outside has a direct impact on, uh, on, on what happens uh, inside uh, the UN's legislative, uh, le legislative body. Um, but that lack of unity from, from member states and the Security Council, I think, didn't stop the Secretary General for, uh, for one moment. And he, he, he moved uh, forward first on instructing his, his envoys, but also, uh, and this brings me to my, my, my second point, um, is that um, 
you know, the, the fact that member states that make up the organization, this is a member state-based organization, didn't succeed in truly uniting and unleashing, uh, did, did not, um, it, it kind of, my sense is that it created more pressure on the Secretary General uh, to step in. And, and, you know, step in, I think he, he did. Not surprisingly, uh, COVID is impacting every one of the UN's, uh, the UN's mandates, uh, from the political, from you know, the, the humanitarian, uh, peacekeeping, human rights, refugees, uh, just, to name, uh, just to name a few. And his voice, uh, the voice of the Secretary General, I think has been very clear in calling for solidarity, in calling for unity, in calling for hope but also issuing a strong warning about the post-COVID world, and one that we hope will not make the inequalities that COVID has laid bare any worse, and making sure that the development gains of the last decade in the fight against poverty, in the fight for women's rights, in the fight for children and access to healthcare are not erased. And that is a very, very big risk, especially on poverty-related indicators, we're already seeing a downward trend in a lot of uh, in, a, in a lot of uh, a countries. On a political level, I mentioned um, he has appealed for a global ceasefire, uh, and he on the vaccine. He's also been very vocal on the need for the vaccine and therapeutics to fight the virus, that they need to be treated as a global public good. Uh, we are concerned, again, at the lack of international cooperation on this issue, though we're seeing a positive movement in terms of the, the COVAX facility, the WHO uh, efforts. But our fear is that the vaccine will be available unequally, that only the rich countries will get it, and even within the wealthier countries, there will be inequalities, that only the wealthy and the poorest countries uh, will have access to it. So treating it as a, as a global public good is not only morally right, which we believe it is, and I hope you, you do as well, but it is also in everyone's self-interest that treatment is accessible to all. I mean, if ever there was a truth to the saying, you know, none of us are safe until all of us are safe, it is with the vaccine and the virus, because uh, it, it, needs to be, uh, it needs to be stamped out everywhere. Um, we also launched a global humanitarian response plan to raise funds for the most vulnerable populations, including refugees and internally displaced people, populations that were already uh, vulnerable. The UN's uh, system, global system of a uh, global supply chain system was put at the disposal of developing countries. In many parts of Africa, during the kind of the, the height of the lockdown, UN planes were the only ones flying, uh, flying in millions of test kits, regulators, surgical masks, uh, humanitarian workers. We've reached over 100 countries uh, in that way. Our peacekeeping operations, our political missions have adapted to new ways of working under these new conditions and have been supporting national authorities in the fight against the virus, in addition to uh, the other critical functions that they are mandated uh, to perform. Um, We've also issued a, a global plan for post-COVID recovery with a series of reports and policy briefs to provide analysis and advice for an effective coordinated response 
by the international community. Our, our local teams, we have UN offices in about 160 countries and territories, are working with local officials and governments to help put these policies into place and support the governments in any way we can. And lastly, I'll come to, to the staff before I take your, your questions. You know, we are an organization of bureaucrats. We're an organization of field workers, of humanitarian workers, of peacekeepers. So the lockdown, like any organization, has created tremendous challenges for us. But under the, you know, following the leadership of the Secretary General, we've kept the UN running from kitchen tables around the world for those of us who work at, um, at headquarters. The impact has been very hard on our peacekeeping colleagues, our humanitarian colleagues who are in the field because rotations had to be stopped for months at a time. So people found themselves who were used to being separated from their families, separated even, uh, even longer. In New York, the Secretary General took the decision to close down the UN headquarters very early on in kind of early to mid-March about 10 days before the city itself shut down Broadway, sports events, museums, et cetera. And, and he did it, I would say, for a number of reasons. First, out of an abundant of, abundance of caution, because we needed to be good neighbors, but also you could say for, you know, for political reasons, because we could not afford the UN becoming a hotspot within the hotspot that New York was fast becoming at, a t at that time. So overnight, we went from about 11,000 people going in to the building, the compound every day, that includes visitors and diplomats, journalists and staff, to uh, now to about 100, uh, 100 or so uh, during the lockdown. And now we're slowly opening up very carefully. We have about 11, 11 to 1,400 people that come in uh, every day. So like all organizations, we're working virtually, helping member states hold meetings virtually, uh, making our humanitarian and peacekeeping colleagues uh, in, in, the, in, in the field, making sure they are well served and supported from headquarters. And of course, this year is the 75th anniversary. Um, we should have had a great uh, General Assembly uh, commemoration of the work done, looking hard at the future of the UN we want, uh, but we wound up having a very diff different General Assembly one that was hybrid, the Secretary General, the President of the General Assembly spoke in person in the hall. About 200 people were in the hall, and that's um, in comparison to about 2,500 who were in the hall on the first day of the General Assembly. Usually, every country was allowed to have one representative uh, per delegation at the, at the seat. And world leaders spoke via pre-recorded messages, uh, videos, some were short and to the point and others not so short, but also obviously to the point. Um, on the plus side, we had more heads of states and governments than ever before addressing the General Assembly. The big loss was of course the personal touch, the informal diplomacy that takes place every year on the sideline of General Assembly when world leaders get to have discrete conversations to either kickstart uh, difficult negotiations, to wrap up difficult negotiations, to just be able to speak to each other, not under the pressure of, of journalists or the glare of, of the light. It was also, frankly, a big loss for our host city. I mean, yes, everybody joked about no traffic, but the, the city took a huge economic blow by uh, not having the tens of thousands of people who descend on the UN for the General Assembly week. So it hit hotels, restaurants, stores, car services, caterers, 
uh, you name it. There was a lot, uh, and that was, I, it was very sad, I think, for the city that, that we all call, uh, call home. So the, the Secretary General is continuing his duties. He's, you know, working the phone, like all of us, getting on Zoom calls, even meeting some people in person. He's continuing to do interviews. We just uh, sat down for a big interview with the Associated Press. You should see that out probably in the next day or so. Most importantly, uh, his focus is to keep the world's attention on the most important task, beating back the virus and building back a stronger, greener world. And, and, and I think that leads me also just to mention one more thing, and that's climate change. I think the big focus next year will be on getting to zero uh, emissions by 2050. As the Secretary General says, you know, COVID is the, the, the fundamental crisis of the year. Climate change is a fundamental fundamental crisis of the century, and we, looking back, even though we're not out of the crisis, is the way we're dealing COVID. The world as a whole hasn't done a great job in working in a coordinated way, and we need to do much much better when it comes to climate change. So I will leave it there. Um, I look forward to taking your questions. And thank you very much. Uh, Steph, as you might expect, there's a robust bunch of uh, questions coming in, as well as uh, in the chat and some Q&A in the Q&A box. Uh, one of the first questions that came in had to do, um, well, it was, the world cannot sustain a population of 9 billion. billion. What are, if there are any new initiatives that are being planned by the UN to encourage I'd say family planning and uh, planned parenthood. Are there any connections that the UN has that way? Well, uh, the UN agency in charge is UNFPA, the UN Fund for Population. Uh, and it's really basically to ensure that women everywhere have uh, control over their reproductive rights, uh, have access uh, to health care, have their babies have access uh, to health care. And one of, um, you know, one of the many uh, negative impacts of, of COVID has been, uh, has been on women, uh, their ability to access uh, health care, the ability, uh, the, the rise, we're, we're seeing a very dangerous and concerning rise of um, violence, gender-based violence against women during the lockdown, it's something the Secretary General flagged very, uh, very early on. So, you know, I would encourage people who are interested in knowing more to, to go to the UNFPA website. We can tell you exactly what they're doing and where and in, in which countries. Thank you. A, a question, what steps, what are the steps the UN under Secretary Guterres leadership or planning uh, to take to unite the nations of the world against COVID-19. Well, and then what do you think COVID-19 aftermath will look like? Will we look better off as a world when it all finishes and settles down? Will we have come together or will it just be treacherous? Well, we're, we're a, uh, an optimistic and realistic bunch here. Uh, we are working hard to make sure that we come out of this stronger, uh, that we come out of this greener, in a sense, that the investments in the community, you know, the, we're seeing a lot of countries, uh, rich and less rich, 
put out stimulus packages. It's important that those packages also focus on building back a green economy, uh, not invest in, in, in fossil fuel, but invest in renewable energy. That, um, you know, we're, we're looking at, at, at promoting what the Secretary General broadly calls a new social uh, contract uh, to ensure that there is more equity uh, in the world in terms of access uh, to basic services, to ensuring uh, human rights. So, um, you know, the, the Secretary General is not, uh, as you well know, the, the world president who can impose, uh, who can impose his will. Uh, that's not the, the United Nations that we have. It's not the United Nations we want, frankly. Um, but he is there to remind member states who have all signed on, but when, became, when becoming member states, signed on to the ideals of the Charter, uh, to remember those ideals uh, as they move forward. So his is more trying to keep his flock together uh, in a way, and he regularly brings them around the table to discuss not only COVID, but especially what the post-COVID world will need and the investments that the post-COVID world will need. <clears throat> Thank you. A couple of questions here sort of interrelated. Um, well, most Americans are familiar with the bulky attitude of their, our own government over the past two years towards international law and institutions. It's fair to say that some of the other permanent five members have been behaving with high-handed disregard for the UN Charter on political conflicts and profound indifference to global dangers like climate and nuclear weapons. Assume for a moment a correction in US attitudes say more like the Obama administration. How do you see the UN system becoming more able to forge agreement on concerted action to deal with pressing issues with these other partner, when these other partners are not likely to change their leadership cadre anytime soon? Look, I, it's hard for me to have a, to, to, to predict uh, the future. And I, I, it's not my role to get into, into politics. What is a fact is that there has been over a number of, uh, of, of years and not, you know, I mean, you look, look back 10 years or so, uh, challenges to the multilateral system and the commitment of the most powerful member states uh, to that multilateral system. And that is a challenge, right? And then the secretary general, his job is to, to kind of remind uh, the, those member states, uh, all of them, of the importance of the multilateral system, not for the sake of just because we want the UN to work, but if we're going to get out of the COVID mess, if we're going to get out of the climate change uh, mess, if we're going to move forward on, on disarmament, it, it can only be done in a multilateral uh, setting. So his job is to make sure that the UN works, right, that the, the system delivers, um, and he has to encourage member states, uh, and again, he is not, his job is not to dictate, but his job is to encourage and to use his bully pulpit to ensure that the multilateral system is strengthened. Thank you. Um, another question, of all the initiatives you designed to fight the pandemic. Um, let's see. 
initiatives you've seen designed to fight the pandemic of personal and organizational corruption. Oh, uh, so this is around corruption and how you work through it in, in the delivery of say COVID aid and getting the world together to, for collective response. There was another one that kind of uh, included Haiti in, in that uh, bit of thought process too. The, the corruption is um, uh, hampering or not helping the situation. Do you, are you seeing corruption with the delivery? You of know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, for, for the Secretary General, it's pretty clear that uh, corruption is, um, how did he put it, the, the, the ultimate betrayal of the public trust. And we have seen worrying signs of, uh, of corruption impacting uh, the way funds are diverted that are meant to fight COVID. You know, when you ever, whenever you have uh, an increase of funds into a system, whether it's stimulus, whether it's humanitarian aid, there's always a risk of, uh, of corruption. Corruption undermines good governance. Uh, it puts us further off track in uh, reaching uh, the sustainable uh, development uh, goals. Uh, but, you know, and it, we've seen cases of COVID, with COVID about, you know, people selling uh, below standard equipment, masks, and, and, and all of that. So that's, uh, you know, defective equipment, uh, medicine that was, uh, that was completely, uh, com completely ineffective. The other big part of, you know, and people think of, of corruption as just kind of payoffs or theft. The other big part of it is um, illicit uh, flows of, uh, of cash, tax havens, right? That takes, mm -hmm. uh, that takes tax revenues away from countries that need it. So there is, there's a lot of work to be done uh, on many levels. Um, a question from one of our, um, uh, from a student, uh, I think in this case, a college student, Steph. Mm -hmm. How may we as students support UN efforts on a local basis? Well, you know, one way is, you know, obviously to join, uh, you know, the, the organizations like the, the ones who all of you were sponsoring, uh, sponsoring this talk. But I would think, you know, working with uh, civic organizations, whether it's the Lions or the Rotary, uh, community-based organizations, you're doing the, the, what we're trying to do globally at a local level. Right. I mean, the, the, the UN, it's not, it's, I mean, this is a phrase that's too often used, but it is our United Nations, right? These goals aren't, the, the, the principles in the charter aren't the principles of just some people. They're the principle of all the peoples from all the member states who have joined the organization. And they need, we're, our focus is on achieving these ideals, on achieving the sustainable development goals at the global level, but none of that can be achieved at the global level unless people like this, this student, I don't, I don't know his or her name, um, gets involved locally, right? I mean, if you work on issues uh, on, on housing, on issues of you know, women's rights, uh, children's rights, access to healthcare, access to education, that's all part of the global challenge that we are working to, towards as well. Thank you. Uh, let's see, we've got a lot of questions coming. Um, uh, 
has Secretary General Guterres reached out, excuse my uh, not knowing how to pronounce this, to KG Fukuda to help with the SARS-CoV-2? WHO had Fukuda go to West Africa to squelch Ebola. Then China used him to help with SARS-2. Can he be asked to help with the U.S.? I Honestly, that uh, I don't know. Uh, okay. I think that's a question to be asked of the World Health Organization, but I, I, I apologize, I, I really don't know. Okay. Um, can you comment on the Chinese COVID vaccine and their initiative to make it available to poor countries in Asia, Africa, and Latin America? From our standpoint, uh, two, two principles that really apply to, to anyone who's developing vaccines is that one, we would want to see them, you know, uh, uh, treated as a global uh, as a global public good, go through all the necessary uh, the necessary tests. But that's really also that's that's more in the scientific realm of the World Health uh, Organization. But it is important that member states participate and support the WHO's COVAX initiative uh, to ensure that um, the vaccine is shared, or that that member states, uh, especially the least uh, the, the, the least wealthiest ones have access to cash in order to buy the vaccine. Um, Steph, on a more general um, note, um, what makes you optimistic about the future? Um, you know, I, part of it is when I uh, when I, I'm privileged to go to the field in the days when we used to travel with the Secretary General, and I see uh, my colleagues, my UN colleagues who are in the field far from home, uh, often when they're international staff, um, really giving 150% of themselves trying to build a better world. I mean, one of the most, um, one of the uh, most amazing young people I met was in uh, northern Uganda. We were there with the Secretary General two and a half years ago, I think. Uh, we were visiting a UNHCR a refugee camp for refugees coming in from South Sudan into northern Uganda. And I met a young man uh, who was Syrian working for the refugee agency from Aleppo. And this was a time when Aleppo was being bombarded and bombed uh, and torn apart. And here was this young man, you know, thousands and thousands of miles from home, from a country itself being torn. And what was he doing? He was someplace else in the world trying to help people. And when I see my colleagues, when I see the local uh, humanitarian workers, the local NGOs, all these people really working uh, earnestly with goodwill, it shows me the best of, of, uh, of humankind um, and gives, you know, and. and and gives me hope. And that's why it's so important for those of us who work at the UN in, the, in this glass tower to, to step out uh, and walk away a bit from the politics, uh, the multilateral politics, and see the world as it is. Um, would you fill in more about the Sahel Conference that you talked about in the, in the, with the media today? Uh, it was a sure. big success. We, we hosted... Um, with the European Union, a conference uh, for the Sahel. The Sahel is probably the, the, the fastest growing uh, humanitarian crisis uh, in the world. And we had a conference on the Central Sahel, which is basically Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso. 
and they are suffering from a host of uh, issues, obviously COVID, issues of, of violence, extremism, of terrorism, often some of it linked um, to, uh, was increased uh, after the fall of the Gaddafi uh, regime in, uh, in Libya that saw an influx of weapons and arms. Uh, we've seen fighters come from, from the Middle East to join that. Um, climate change, where you know, extreme weather of floods and droughts uh, impacting people's ability to, um, uh, to, to grow their own food. And the climate change also uh, creating a, um, a clash uh, between the, uh, the pastoralists and the farmers, right? And you've got, uh, uh, you, you've got traditional herders who have moved across borders, across boundaries with their cattle uh, being forced because of climate change, because of desertification further south in lands that are really used for, for farming. So that has created a lot of, uh, of challenges. Sadly, this is one of the most un undercovered crises uh, in the world because of its remoteness from, uh, from the Western world. But it is one of these uh, multifaceted uh, crises uh, that the UN has to deal with. The UN has changed substantially from its inception, where it was dealing with the end of empires, to the rise of states, to the importance of individuals, even cities, NGOs. How is the UN changing to meet the new dynamics in the world where there wants to be much more NGO and citizen participation? I mean, the world today is not the world of 1945, right? I mean, we had 50 member states in the beginning, we have 193. Uh, what was initially more of a talk shop has become a much more operational organization. I mean, peacekeeping was not envisaged in the charter um, and something that was created uh, out of thin air, led by uh, a tremendous American uh, diplomat, Ralph Bunch. Um, and so the UN, I mean, you know, the, the UN, but it simply is a reflection of the world we live in. And so we talk about UN reform, but it's really about UN adaptation. We need to make sure the system uh, fits, uh, sorry, um, fits the, the world that we're, in which we operate. One of the big changes, as you mentioned, Stu, is the fact that the UN now is and needs to even open up more and that's what part of what the Secretary General calls the new, the new multilateralism, the new glo global system, is to ensure that civil society, youth groups, the business sector, all these other groups have more of a say in the UN. And that's been a, a process, I would say, that, uh, that started you know, in earnest under, under Kofi Annan uh, with a very focused opening to uh, the private sector. Um, and that has continued exponentially uh, through the other two secretaries general. Um, now, the interesting thing is that there is a kind of built-in tension between that and some member states who feel that the organization is defined by the charter is an organization of member states. So that's a reality we have to live with, um, but we can't help being more open to these non-member states sectors 
because if you look at the world around you, where is the power? Now, the government, central governments remain, retain a huge amount of the power, right? I mean, on the, 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 the use of force, mm -hmm. or just to, to, to say, to, to use one, one example. But if you look at, uh, at certain foundations, if you use business, at certain businesses, global businesses, they have a tremendous amount of money, a tremendous ability to influence economies, to influence societies. So we need to make sure that the UN as a convening platform is open to all these uh, entities. And we've seen it in uh, discussions about, um, about the internet, uh, where it's kind of what we call this clunky world, it's kind of multi-stakeholder platforms, where it's not just government, but it's also industries and civil society groups that have uh, a way to speak and to influence. Perfect. Um, okay, a question. Uh, at the World Food Day conference, the head of the World Food Program, Beasley, stated that they needed to raise another $4 billion. They only have $8 billion and they need $12 billion to handle the doubling of people needing food aid. Is there an organized effort to raise that funding? Uh, well, first of all, I'd say, I think we have to congratulate our colleagues at WFP for winning the, the Nobel Peace Prize. And frankly, David Beasley is a tremendous, tremendous UN leader. Uh, and I think yeah, pers on a personal note, I think he's done a fantastic job in raising the profile of WFP uh, and ensuring that uh, the funding for WFP continues. If, you, if you've seen or heard him recently, he's been pretty blunt. It's like, you know, there are billionaires in this world that need to cough up some money. Right. Uh, as he put it, I'm not against anybody making money, but they are uh, a number of people who were very wealthy before COVID, who have got, become even wealthier. And it's about encouraging them to also uh, give money. And I, I would... Um, you know, I would not want to be sitting across the table from David Beasley because he's a very persuasive guy. So he may he may squeeze a few dollars out of me, um, but he will. Um, this is a fight that he will he will continue to make take. So let's just drill down on that. So let's say that. What would Beasley say to somebody? How would he convince a billionaire to make a contribution like that? Would well, it be? On a spiritual you know, basis, philosophical, better for the world, better for himself. How it, does that work? It's like it's like everything. I mean, I, I and, and I don't know what arguments he would use, but I, the arguments that I, I would use, it's like, and it's it's kind of like what I said about the vaccine. It's not only the right and moral thing to do; it's in your self-interest, right? Peace, stability, uh, equity is in the self-interest of the business community. That's how they make money. Right? It's hard. I mean, you know, you've always got people who profit from wars, but in general, most businesses uh, will be healthier if the world is healthier, if the world is more uh, is is more peaceful. So there's, you know, there's you you could use the moral argument, or you could just use a self-interest argument. Frankly, as long as the results are the same, it doesn't really matter. Okay, so let's see. We're coming close to the end of the time here. We're not quite there. Um, 
There's so many questions. You know, one of the things that always comes up is, I don't know if there's an answer that's possible about uh, the Security Council, reform of the Security Council, and where does that go? What's the, well, what are the dynamics there? We know we'd like it to go. Uh, the dynamics are that um, it's, it's a tough nut to crack. Uh, and I, I will put it in kind of a different, uh, I mean, I, two points I want to make. One, it's critical to the centrality of the legitimacy of the UN to have a Security Council that reflects the world that we live in today, not the world of 1945. That's pretty clear. Um, second, how we get there, when we get there, what it looks like is firmly in the hands of member states. They will decide. The Secretary General doesn't have uh, any authority or any say in that. It's up to the member states. It will likely call for a review of the charter and a and, and a you know ratification by member states of the charter. So it's a long and complicated uh, process. So those are two facts. Uh, my opinion, it's my personal opinion, is that I'm not too optimistic, and I would say because those who have the power can kind of sit pretty. On, because those who want in have yet to agree and really agree on a unified plan. And by that, I mean, there's so much competition from those who want to get into the council in either a permanent or semi-permanent way um, that until there's unity from those who want to go in, I think those who are in um, will probably have some more time to themselves. Mm -hmm. So going back to the uh, operations of the UN today, so you have some staffing coming. Uh, is there are there are there visitors uh, being accepted at, at no, today? No, so there are no no visitors in the building. There are very few member state meetings, uh, very few travel, if any. Uh, I mean, the Secretary General, you know, and let me just put it this way: we're we are very uh, aware of the need for us to respect the health regulation of our host city and our host state. So the Secretary General has left the country twice uh, since March, uh, really to go home to visit his family. His wife is the deputy mayor of Lisbon, so she's been staying in Lisbon, and his mother is in her upper 90s, so he's went home. Every time he came back, and he did two weeks quarantine back here in New York at the residence and worked from home. Um, so we are being good neighbors, we are being very careful, where we are being safe, which means that the building right now remains closed to, uh, to visitors. One last question, I think, Steph. Um, do you have any favorite positive examples of the work that the UN is doing that we could cite? We were approached by family or friends who are critical of the UN system? Well, two, two points to make. One is, I, I think the first, when somebody says that to you, you should be somewhat Talmudic and answer with a question. Like, what UN are you talking about? And the challenge that we have, and I think I may have made that point last year, is that we have on one hand, the world's most recognizable logo, yet no brand management by design. So, so many people can speak and act on behalf of the UN. So when the Security Council fails to unite, when the General Assembly 
is in disarray. It's the UN. And you know, when, when legislative bodies of the UN pass resolutions that may be an affront to the person you're speaking to, you could say, well, that's the, the, the member states, right? Those are sovereign member states. But you have to point to the, the millions of people that are being fed by the World Food Program every day. Um, the, the, the refugees that are being uh, given uh, housing and shelter by the UN Refugee Agency, the amazing work that the World Health Organization has done in partnership with organizations like Rotary in almost wiping out polio. You talk to them about the UNICEF staff members who are going out and vaccinating children against polio in war zones, right? Um, that's also the work of the United Nations. That's the stuff that United Nations staff members do day in and day out. Thank you. Um, we have a, a robust a chat and questions and answers going on. We'll be sure to share these with you, Steph. And uh, just wonderful presentation today. Uh, we have a few closing remarks from uh, Nancy Dunleavy and, uh, and Mark Ritchie. And if you'll hang on and maybe add a little uh, parting word at the I end, we would appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Thank you very, very much. So, Stu, Stu, I think we have about five more minutes for Q&A. Okay, would you like to pose a question? <laughs> um, I, I haven't been following the chat. Okay, Mark, would you like to pose a question? So, 25 years ago, uh, organizations in Minnesota and in partnership around the country convened a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the UN with the surviving founders out in the Opera House in San Francisco. It was incredible. We had a chance to think about many different things. But what I reflected on in preparing for today and thinking about today is that those were the last moments of so many of the founders, Minnesota Governor Harold Stassen and others. We've come to the end nearly of the lives of the survivors of the Holocaust, of the Second World War, of the Second World War veterans. The passing of the baton of the generations who fought the wars, who dealt with the, the genocide and the tragedies, who then built the UN system and the world health, that generation is now passing the baton in more or less its final decade. And so Stefan, you are part of a, of a whole group of people, and I like to think of our Minnesota community as part of that, who must pick up that torch to light the way, must grab that baton of the task that's unfinished and run with it. Do you feel like the young people that are coming behind us are going to just push us out of the way and take the baton and take the torch and just move us and we can get moving with them? How do you see this youth movement that globally is challenging uh, the most repressive regimes, the craziness of gun violence, the question of climate? It just feels like there's something going on. There's huge generational change and you must be able to see it from your position there at the UN. Well, frankly, you know, I wouldn't mind if they did push us out of the way. Uh, 
I think as, as the Secretary General said a number of times, our generation, his generation, um, I'm, I'm 15 years younger than him, so I don't know if we're in the same generation, but it's not as if we've really succeeded, right? Uh, there's a lot of arguments to be made that we failed. We have failed the youth in terms of how we are leaving the planet to them, right? In terms of the, the conflicts, in terms of, of the climate. Um, uh, it is clear that without the push of young people, governments would not be moving on, uh, on climate change like they are. It is clear that you know, the youth have also understood the power of the purse, which has also pushed the business community. So uh, the, 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 the power, the, the savvy, and the political engagement of young people in the world today, I think, give me hope. Great. Uh, thank you, Steph. This was terrific. Uh, Nancy, do you want to take the, the mic? This was really wonderful. And I think while we're all isolated in our own homes, to talk with you, Stefan, and to have all the wonderful questions coming in from everyone, and you only were able to just touch on the beginnings of them, um, makes me feel like we're really part of one world and you know, trying to work together here to make some kind of difference. So thank you so much. Um, I just wanna give a little bit of an explanation to those who don't know about Citizens for Global Solutions of Minnesota, one of the three partner organizations for this event. Um, we have existed since 1946, originally as the World Federalist Association. And we make a point of staying informed about and engaged with various global problems. And we strive to offer global solutions that we as Minnesotans can engage in locally. Um, in the Twin Cities here, we're most known, most well known for our third Thursday Global Issues Forums program, which ran from 2000 all the way up until very recently. And now we've sort of tweaked that a bit. We're now starting a third Thursday Global Films Discussion Group. So each month we're choosing a film that we watch on our own, and then we're gathering together to have a discussion about it. Um, this last month, we started this new program and we actually studied Prosecuting Evil, the Extraordinary World of Ben Ferenz. I'm sure almost all of you are familiar with Ben Ferenz, who's the last surviving pro prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials. He's now 100 years old this year and also a leading advocate for the creation of the International Criminal Court. So our, check our website, we'll be listing very soon our November film and that'll be an ongoing program. We also participate in CGS Nationals World Citizens Virtual Book Club, which is uh, where we read the book and then discuss together. And right now that group is over three months covering the book, My Country is the World, The Adventures of a World Citizen by Gary Davis. Um, so find out, to find out about these activities and various other events and campaigns that we're doing as we are all, you know, all virtual right now, please go to our website, which is globalsolutionsmn.org. That's globalsolutionsmn.org. And I will now turn the program over to Mark Ritchie, and um, who's going to share with us a bit about the programs in Global Minnesota. Well, I'll just respond to one of the questions, which was where could this 
at a per person who is asking, find more about the UN 75th. Uh, we have people who were on today from Kentucky and around the world, different places of the country, and I think that's a shared question. On the Global Minnesota website and the Global Minnesota YouTube channel, you can find a wide range of different things about the UN, including last year and this year, new programs about UN agencies like the All Day World Food Day from last Friday. But also the UN itself has incredible media materials, not only on the history and the life of the UN, but also on the sustainable development goals, which are part of the kind of grassroots participation of so many groups here in Minnesota and others going forward. So Global Minnesota is active on things, everything from the history to the future, but also on the programs of the UN, like the World Food Program or the Sustainable Development Goals. So our website, the YouTube, all of those are places where you can find out more about that. Stefan, thank you for being there and for representing the best, the highest ideals of those who founded and created the UN, of those who've sustained it, of our friend, our sort of adopted Minnesotan, Kofi Annan and others that you've had the good fortune and the gift of being able to work with closely. And also we want you to come back again when it's safe. And someday we would like to make sure that you come out with the Secretary General so we could have a really fun opportunity back when we're safe can really celebrate um, and for us, this could be something that we could all look forward to and um, make happen when it becomes safe again. Thank you. Great. Uh, listen, thank, uh, thank you, Mark, and thank you to Stu for moderating. Thank you for Nancy, to Nancy. Um, I just want to say that, you know, you're, I think as I said in one of the answers to the student, you know, what, the, what you do at the local level has a huge impact and is critical to the work we do at the global level. Um, and that, that critical link uh, between the global and the local is really about the first words of the charter, we the peoples. Um, and so I would encourage you to stay engaged in your communities, business, civil society, academia, whatever you want to do. Um, but to put it simply, I think your, your work is all about uh, understanding the relevance of, uh, of the United Nations of our United Nations. So thank you again for having me and I hope to see all of you uh, in person very soon. Steph, we're not quite finished yet. Um, you know, there was a, um, a nice little note in here that said Cargill dispatched the $1 million Nobel Peace Prize award to the World Food Program. Uh, so that's a great thing. And follow on, should we encourage other matches here locally? And I think that's a great idea too. And I, I would also say this is in no small part due to uh, Global Minnesota and Mark Ritchie's robust program that you did last week or Global Minnesota, all of the Global Minnesota folks. We also have um, background here, Carolina Gustafson and Tim Odegaard from Global Minnesota who have been kind of running the background to piece of this webinar and very much thank them. And uh, so just a note about the United Nations Association of Minnesota. Um, we we're formed as a nonprofit organization to promote the goals and principles of the United Nations. 
We're a chapter of the UNA, USA, the national organization, and our parent found organization is the UN Foundation. We all work cooperatively together. Um, we're focused on the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Our next program is on Sustainable Development Goal number 14. It's Life Underwater, which is the goal, and it will be a virtual program with Dr. Luther Adland, who's a river scientist with the River Ecology Unit of the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. He'll discuss issues related to the global loss of freshwater biodiversity and efforts in Minnesota and beyond, including East Coast and other places to restore the health of river systems. You can sign up on our webpage. It's under the events and meetings tab. I've seen a little bit of his presentation or quite a lot. It's just dramatic what happens when you remove dams or uh, take silt out of streams and make them flow normally again. We have uh, since 2004 educated or been uh, had 25,000 or more middle and senior high school students participate in Model UN. Our Model UN conference is coming up on November 20th. It'll be virtual. We expect 300 students from half a dozen high schools. Um, we focus, aside from these two programs, we focus on advocacy for the UN. Last thing, I would be remiss if I didn't say, we're a membership organization, dues are not so much. We, and if you're less than 26, they're free. We invite you to join and you can find that under our webpage at the Get Involved tab. So that's the program today. Steph, we really appreciate it. I know you're a busy, busy guy and, and thanks for taking the time to do this. And as Mark said, uh, we hope to see you soon again in person. Thank you. Uh, so I'm sorry I jumped the closing words, but I've I think I've already closed. Uh, so no, thank thank you again, Stu, and uh, thank you to all of you who took part of your day to uh, to listen in and to to watch and ask questions.